If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, and friends, today's episode, we are going to be talking about how to equip your team to problem solve without you with Louise Velasquez and Kristen Gleitzman. One of the reasons I really wanted to bring them on is I I read their article in the Harvard Business Review. Really, that was the title of it, How to Equip Your Team to Problem Solve Without You. And it really did help me see that it's time for many of us to shift our perspectives and embrace a powerful approach that goes beyond just solving problems for our teams, like us solving it for them. And so in this conversation, we're going to be exploring how we can empower our team members to really unleash their own problem-solving potential, even, this is the best part, even when we are not present, even when we're not in the building. Louise, who holds a PhD in botany and also an MBA, by the way, has over a dozen years of coaching experience. He is a sought-after speaker and author, and you may have read him in the Harvard Business Review or Fast Company. He is the founder and managing partner of Velas Coaching and a leadership facilitator at Stanford Business School. He, by the way, also has served as a coach for Kristen Gleitzman, who co-wrote the HBR article with him, How to Equip Your Team to Problem Solve Without You. She is the Vice President of Discovery Research at Verisite, a pioneering global diagnostics company. Kristen, Louise, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the introduction. That's humbling. Well, thank you. I I will say I've been looking forward to this conversation for many, many reasons. But it's interesting, as I was doing the intro, I realized, I think I want to start this a little bit differently. So how did the two of you go from a coaching relationship, really, where Kristen Louise was your coach and you were his client? How did you all go from that to really ending up co-authoring an article in HBR where you ended up talking about one of your mentees? Yeah, so Luis and I have worked together now for a good number of years. The first year and a half, he was my leadership coach during a fairly difficult transition I was going through at work. And then I successfully navigated and I give a lot of credit to his coaching and helping me 
make that transition. At that point, I was promoted and given a larger organization. And, you know, I also felt like I was coming into my own as a leader. So I asked Luis if he would be willing to be my team coach and sort of help not only me, but the team that I was now managing and scaling make transitions of their own. So several of them needed to grow from being individual contributors to being managers. Some of them needed to grow from being managers of teams to now being managers of organizations, so teams of teams. And I felt like the the work that Luis and I had done together would be helpful for them. And so that's how we transitioned from him being my coach to him being my team coach. And then, you know, obviously we had built a fairly deep relationship over those years and I consider us friends. So, and so when I left my last company and joined Verisite where I am now, we wanted to keep the relationship going. And there were so many good lessons that we learned together, I think, through the experience of building my team and growing my team and seeing the issues that arise for people as they make these different leadership transitions, then it made sense for us to just keep seeing how we could share that. And so this is our first of what I hope will be many articles together, kind of leveraging all of that insight. I will say, I love the article that the two of you wrote. And I think it actually starts off with a story that I'm hoping you all are going to share. Hi, Kristen. Yeah, so it's the story that is a bit of an aggregate, right? So yes, I had mentees that I had to coach through this, but it's also a situation that I've seen pretty much from a 360 degree perspective. So I myself have been an umbrella manager. I have been managed by umbrella managers and then I have managed umbrella managers. And so it's a circumstance that I am very intimately familiar with. And, you know, in this case, right, it's hard to watch someone with all the right intention end up with all the wrong outcomes just because of sort of this approach being a little off, particularly in an organization that's scaling and when your team is scaling and the need to bring new skills to bear on the situation. And Susan in the article in some ways was me. And so I think maybe easiest to speak about it from my own personal experience, which is in fact the story of how Luis came to be my coach. You know, I was part of a company that scaled during the time that I was there. I was there for five and a half years from 100 people to almost 2,000. And in the middle of that, you know, I was being thrown things left and right. And it was a bit of a brutal working environment. And especially when you're trying to move fast and scale, I felt as a manager, one of the things that was a sacred duty was to take care of my team. I still feel that way. It's just what it looks like looks a little different now. At the time, what it looked like for me was to try to protect my team from the organizational turmoil and, you know, all of the stress of all these projects coming at us. And so as a result, you know, sort of much like the Susan in the article and much like I've seen other people go through, I was really trying to run out in front of all of these obstacles and tackle them. And what that led to was me being quite stressed out and not particularly effective. And then, you know, having been on the other side of this equation a few times, it's also very disempowering for your team. So unless you provide them space to lean in and start to come into their own, oftentimes they'll sit back and they'll watch and they'll go, okay, well, Kristen has this or, well, you know, whoever has this, I'll wait. So I don't know, Luis, if you have more color you want to add to that since I've come clean as being partly Susan here. (laughs) I think that what I would like to add to this is the article, and let's define what an umbrella manager is. And I think that it comes from the good intentions of the manager 
to really protect their direct reports, uh, making sure that they are not overworked, making sure that they are not confronted by other individuals that might want to push them in that direction that they might not want to go. So this really comes from a really good intentions of trying to protect those individuals. It doesn't come from the perspective of, you know, I want to be in control. I want to be a micromanager. I want to be the person that makes the decisions. That is a completely different mindset. This umbrella manager, which we wrote in the article, is an individual that whose intentions was really simply making sure that their team was protected, let's put it that way, and they were not overworked or whatnot. The unintended consequences, as Christian was saying, is that the good intentions might be there, but the impact on the team and the umbrella manager itself can be quite uh, negative. And so let's talk about that impact, the impact on those team members that are, I mean, literally, when we talk about an umbrella, you're literally underneath the umbrella. So are underneath the umbrella manager. I think that the impact to the team is that at the beginning, even though they appreciate the intention, over time, they start seeing that they are not getting the visibility that they want to have. They are not making decisions that they should be making, and they feel micromanaged, even though they are not being micromanaged, but that's the impact that this is having. So over time, not only they start you know, resenting the leader, but also feeling tight and not empowered to start with. Kristen, is that true? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there are kind of two potential outcomes and either of them is not good. So yes, you have some people who are very strongly independent and want to lean into challenges and just are wired that way, who will feel constrained by being under someone who's sort of so overtly trying to protect them from everything. The other outcome is you've got people who are maybe comfortable with being protected, but they're not growing, right? And so you're limiting their potential by not allowing them to navigate through challenges that they can, you know, maybe it, it'll be a struggle, right? And we all learn through struggle. It's kind of in that tension that we grow the most. And so when you're depriving people of the opportunity to navigate challenges on their own, you're really depriving them of the opportunity to grow. And so even if they're okay with the situation, it's a huge loss for the organization in terms of growing that next level of leaders. That's what, on the other component of, of, of the impact of, on the leader itself is that the leader becomes the bottleneck for decisions which completely impedes innovation and uh, speed. What is interesting is that these leaders' peers start having perceptions of this leader as a person that wants to be in control all the time. When the reality is that, you know, her intention is just to protect the team, but they become the bottleneck because they want to be at the front of the decisions, not because they want control, but because they want to protect their teams. So I could envision maybe a manager or leader who hears this and says, okay, fine, I'm just going to be completely hands-off. And I imagine, well, there's not a, a black and white line. There probably is a fuzzy gray line. So can we talk about where that line might be? Yeah, I think that the job of the leader is to provide the rails, you know, the limits of what is it that we need to do and the best outcome. The analogy that I have is that, you know, between the author and an editor, the manager has to be the editor. You know, the editor is the person that, okay, this is the book that we're going to write. This is the subjects, you know, this is the outcome. The people are going to be the authors and they're going to write the book. 
having said that, I think that the leader needs to be aware of how, how what is the progress of the book going? Does that, does that make sense? So that is the analogy that I have on that component. Kristen, is that, what, what are you thinking? Yeah, and I think one of the pernicious things about this umbrella manager situation is the further you are in it, the harder it is to unwind because you have kind of put yourself front and center. And if things are moving quickly, you're like, how do I delegate this? You know, what if the wrong decision is made? And there's a lot of fear of mistakes. But the other thing that happens then is when the leader's bandwidth is limited because they're going to back-to-back meetings all day long, they don't have the time to have that coaching conversation, really step back and observe what's the behavior of my direct report? What's their decision-making framework? How are they handling conflicts when they come up? And how do I have that conversation with them about where their approach is maybe not as beneficial as it could be, or, you know, turning yourself into the trusted thought partner when that person comes to you and says, I'm really struggling with this relationship, or, wow, I feel really bullied by this colleague of mine. And, you know, instead of going, okay, I'm going to go talk to that person that I'm going to, I'm going to get in front of this. You say, okay, like, tell me more about that. How are you handling it? How are you thinking about that? And then as you kind of let go of your Legos, as they say, you have more time to do that sort of coaching conversation really bring them up to where they need to be to operate even more independently. But I think as Louise said, it's a lot of this is around providing the context and the guardrails and sort of being, yeah, being the editor, I guess. <laughs> so I really appreciate, Kristen, that concept of the longer you've been doing this, the further in you are, the harder it is to unwind. The team is kind of morphed around what our behavior as a leader is and everybody's so used to it. And so when you start to behave differently, they're like, what? wait a minute, this isn't how we operate. Yeah, absolutely. And it's scary too when you're doing it for the first time, particularly if it's happening because you've had to kind of grow yourself in your career. Because usually, you know, people who are promoted from IC to manager, they've been very, very good at executing. They make very few mistakes. They show good decision-making skills. And that does not mean that they have any idea how to pass that on to somebody else. And so there is a fear of like, if I put my team member in, are they going to make the same decisions as me? The answer to that is no. And that's okay. Because again, going back to this guardrails discussion, you have to give them sort of the parameters that they're operating in. And then you have to be okay that they're going to do things differently than you would have. And you have to be okay with some mistakes happening and really strengthen the muscle around how do we come together to recover, not how do we prevent mistakes from happening? Because nobody grows in an environment where mistakes can't happen. Yeah, two things. I just want to reflect really quickly for some of my friends who are listening who might not know what IC is. So I think Kristen was saying individual contributor to manager. So a lot of people go from individual contributor to manager. And so I will also say, I've lately been grooving on a book by Dan Martell. There's a line that he says that I've actually been using a lot, which is, you know, 80% done by somebody else is 100% awesome. (laughs) And that's so true, you know, because I do think you're right. So often managers are like, they're not going to do it as well as me. Or I could do it faster. And at some level, you reach a point where you're like, it doesn't matter whether or not I could do faster. Done by somebody else is better than done by me. And I think that there is a mindset that I try to get to people to understand that we are doers and now we need to become enablers. And that is a completely mindset with a completely different set of skills, including delegation and including the ability to let go of control. So once you assume I am an enabler, 
And I think that the key here is being intentional about doing that because when we move from ICO, individual contributors to, to managers, especially in an organization like Christians that grows so fast, there is not enough room, there is not enough time to make that mental shift. But if we are not aware that there is such a mental shift, then we don't know what we need to do. So I think that the key here is being intentional about making the mental shift, understanding that you have to make the mental shift. Because if you make that mental shift, then you go with the intention of enabling, letting go of the control and the doing part. Luis, you just made a light bulb go off over my head to my friends who are listening. If you're multitasking right now, please come back. Because like, oh my gosh, that was something I've not thought about. I am 30 plus years into my career and I've not thought about that. You're so right. I mean, someone goes from being an individual contributor where they've had full control over the product of their work. And so they're used to being able to think, yes, I have full control. I'm used to everything being 100% perfect, done exactly the way I want it done. And now you go to becoming a manager and you no longer have that full control and learning to accept that. Wow. Thank you. Um, Really light bulb moment for me. Luis is really good at those light bulb moments. I cannot tell you how many I have had over the course of like, I'll be like, oh, it's a really hairy problem. And he'll be, he'll say one sentence and I'll be like, oh yeah, exactly that. <laughs> well, you know, I'll say that's always a sign of a good coach. Yeah. You know, a good coach is someone who's like, and just, in just one moment can give you, can give you something that really changes the whole trajectory of the way you work. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate that. Just to expand on that, I think that a lot of times we focus on what we need to do. We need to let go. We need to do this. We need to do that. We need to empower this. We need, and I think that the key is focus on being. I'm going to be an enabler because that creates the intention within yourself that you can start acting as such, as opposed to keeping a list of things that you need to do because you're not making that shift of being by just keeping a list of the things that you need to do. So going back to the intentions, I am going to be an enabler. I'm going to enable my team. And that changes your mental state and do things accordingly. Let's put it that way. One of the things that you talked about in the HBR article, and let me say, just so everyone who's listening knows, like they outlined, I think, about eight different things that really we can be doing in order to really help equip our teams to figure out how to solve their own problems without us. But one of the ones that I really loved is how we can help our team embrace discomfort. Because I actually think so often that's what makes growth for our team members so hard. And also, frankly, what makes growth for us so hard is it's not comfortable. So how do we help our team members embrace that uncertainty and discomfort? Kristen, do you have any insights on that? I think there's a lot you can do when you're setting up the relationship or the culture of the team so that everyone understands that some amount of failure is expected, right? That perfection is not the goal here. And that gives people the peace of mind to actually lean into that discomfort or do things that they, uh, they've they never done before, knowing that, you know, there's a soft cushion, right? There's, somebody will be there to support and help them. So that's one thing. And actually, I will say the environment that I was in when I was going through this leadership transition, that was something that they did exceptionally well, was this sort of growth mindset of, you know, fail forward, right? Let's, we're going to move fast and we're going to make mistakes and then we're going to pick ourselves up and move forward. And so I will say, I really learned that from that environment. And I think that helps with the discomfort. I think the other thing that managers need to do is, again, and particularly if your instinct is to try to help bail out your direct report, 
is to lean back when you have that instinct of like, I need to give them the solution or they seem really uncomfortable. I need to make this better for them is to go, no, this is actually, this is good. We're going to sit together. I'm just going to hold space for them to be in this state of discomfort. And I'm going to continue asking them questions instead of giving them what I would do in this situation. And then slowly over time, I think people build their own trust in themselves that they can actually do this work. I don't know, Luis, if you have anything to add to that. We were talking earlier, my children are, (laughs) I love them so much. And because I love them so much, I want to help them in everything they do. But it's not about them, it's about me. I want to make things happen faster. So for the kids to do something, you know, they have to, I can just get up, open the refrigerator and pour up a milk for them. And I think that that is similar, the mindset of, uh, of leaders. They want to make things happen. So sometimes people come with questions and their immediate action is to provide a solution. Just because they want to avoid, you know, having to teach them how to pour the milk <laughs> and try to understand, you know, what is that they need to do as, as kids. So I think that it is about avoiding not the discomfort of the individuals, but the discomfort that I have on doing that myself. So in other words, you know, I need to understand that I am doing a disservice to my child if I do everything for them all the time. Just the same that I'm doing a disservice to my direct reports if I try to solve all of the problems. And it makes it more difficult for me because I am taking a burden that now it creates a dependency of them. Every time that they need something, they're going to come and ask me. I have to give them the answer because that was the expectation. So yeah, I don't know if that that helps. I think it does. And I think at the workplace, there's also this sense of, wow, you know, if my team could do everything without me, am I still needed? You know, which obviously is a false question to really ask. Well, in reality, you're just freed up to do even bigger, better stuff. But I also see where some people are really locked into this role of, well, I'm a manager. My job is to manage people. So suddenly they don't need to be managed the same way. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? So it's so funny you should say that because I still to this day give myself projects to keep myself out of my team's hair. And those projects, you know, depending on, I lead a very different team than I did at my previous employer where it was a really huge organization. And there, all of my side projects were around how can I make this this organization and its interfaces with all the other parts of the organization move more smoothly. In my current role, it's a little bit different, but, you know, usually, yeah, it frees you up to ask that question. How can I be adding value? And there's always an answer to that question. There's always something you can be doing and usually more when you're not in the thick of it trying to solve (laughs) individual problems that, quite frankly, you've already solved that problem, right? You wouldn't be in the position you're in if that that wasn't a problem you or a problem like it you had not already solved before. I will share with you early on in my career as a chief executive, I really struggled with that, honestly. And one of my board chairs, who also is now a personal friend, but at one point was a board chair and a professional mentor. She was a West Point grad. I talk about her a lot. And Rhonda used to say to me, delegate and graduate, delegate and graduate. You know, she was like, why are you still doing this? And, and it would be helpful. Yeah, and I think that the key here is that if you are having trouble letting go of the work that you need to do, you are not looking forward to your own growth and your own career. And I think that delegating is the best way to prepare yourself and your people for promotion. 
So when you delegate, you free your time to start tackling other things that are bigger that can demonstrate your potential rather than your competence on the work that you're doing right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's one other thing that I really want to make sure that we do have a little bit of a conversation about. And that's also how we as managers and leaders, how we can model those solution-oriented mindsets so that our team sees us really being focused on solutions and not focused on problems that can't be solved. And I know you all have written about that in the article as well. Will you repeat that? question again. I'm not very clear. Oh, sure, sure. So in the article, you all talked about modeling a solution-oriented mindset, a mindset on like, yes, you know, this is solvable. This is figure-outable. And the importance of modeling that with our teams. I think that, you know, and and Christian can attest to this, uh, one point or another, I think that what we do, it needs to be observable and actionable. And I am very, very fond of having what I call a keystone habit. And a keystone habit is something that you do repetitively that will impact everything you do. So in that case, just asking one question, what are you trying to solve? What options do you have? That alone sends the signal that you're looking for solutions. And most importantly, you're trusting your team to come up with their own as well. It's amazingly simple, the little things, that little tweaks that you can do that can completely shift how you see things and how people see you. So a complicated problem doesn't have to have a complicated solution. A lot of people write about optimism and leadership and how important it is. And I think that's, you know, this is one of the ways that you model optimism is leaning into how might we, right? What would need to be true for us to solve this problem? And it is interesting because one of the things, again, when I was operating more as an umbrella manager is when you have so many things flying at you and you're really trying to catch them all, that sense of overwhelm really impairs your cognitive function. And so all of that creative thinking about, you know, what resources do I need in order to actually solve this problem? All of that is just, I don't think we wrote about this, but it's definitely something that is much harder to tap into. And I see this a lot in that mid-level of manager where they're still trying to figure out how to do that. And they show up at meetings and they're like, I can't do this because of these 12 reasons. (laughs) You're like, okay. (laughs) what's, you know, and then you start to ask the question or like, okay, that's, you know, that's, I hear that you're really busy. Let's talk about what would need to be true for this to be, you know, something we work on together. And, you know, these are people not in my organization. This is me coaching, you know, across the organization, but it is, it is interesting that solutions mindset is really, really critical. I think for people to break out of sort of frontline manager and really think about becoming a, a leader in a truer sense of the word. Thank you. And Louise, Kristen, I have to make sure we jump to the off the map question. And so I've got an interesting one for you. So imagine that you were able to send a postcard to every person in the United States, but you can only put one message on it. And obviously each get your own message, but you can only put one message on it. It could be a message that's personal for the individuals, like for everybody, or it could be something that's more professional or business oriented. What message are you going to put on that postcard? Gosh, um, it's just one or two. <laughs> well, well, so I mean, if you could each have one, but you know, I mean, if you do have two sides to a postcard, so you could put one on each side. For me, you know, it's, uh, it's, I'm trying to decide. I have three. I think that for me is something that I do personally is that for me, 
to act differently, I need to think differently. And for you to think differently, you need to see differently. And I think that a lot of times, uh, so yeah, so the message will be see differently, to think differently, to act differently. I like that. Ooh, that's crisp. That's clear. That's nice. Kristen, how about you? What's on your postcard? I think it would just be, you've got this. And I think that's deeply personal to me. I struggle a lot with confidence, which is, you know, um, you know, something that I tell myself occasionally when I'm, when I'm not really sure, I'm like, you got this, you've got this, you've done, you've done harder before. And I think there are a lot of people, right? I mean, I'm incredibly privileged from a whole lot of different perspectives to be in the position that I'm in, to have the resources that I do. And there are a lot of people that don't have anywhere near that, that kind of privilege. And so just to like, feel like you've got this, right? Life is hard, but you can rise to meet your circumstances. So I think that would be mine. Oh my gosh. I love that message of hope. Thank you. Thank you, Louise. Thank you, Kristen, so much for coming on the podcast. Before we say farewell, let's just make sure that our listeners know how to find you. And so Louise can be found at his coaching website, velascoaching.com. And at that website, you can find out more about his services, but he also has lots of resources on there that you definitely want to make sure you check out. And that's velazcoaching.com. Additionally, this episode is supposed to air about August 15th. We are recording it in May because A, we're planners and we record far in advance, and B, I'm going on sabbatical this summer. So uh, I will barely be back from sabbatical when this airs. But sometime around when this airs, Louise will also have a book coming out that you are going to want to get. I know I'm going to be pre-ordering it so that it will be on my desk when I get back from sabbatical. And that's Ordinary Resilience, Rethinking How Effective Leaders Adapt and Thrive. So make sure you also pre-order Louise's book, Ordinary Resilience. And I'll share with you for Kristen, what we're going to do is we're just going to link to her LinkedIn page, and uh, you can always connect with her on LinkedIn. Hey, Kristen, Louise, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, my friends, if you need a link to pre-order that book or order that book, or you are looking for Velas Coaching, you can just go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. We are going to link both of those in the show notes. And let me share with you that if you found this episode helpful, I would suggest that you share it with someone else. It is so important that everybody seek coaching. Literally, and I say this all of the time, every professional athlete has a coach. Regardless of how good they are, they could be the best hitter in baseball in the world. They could be the best quarterback in the world. They're going to have a coach. And so if you want to be the best or get near the best, then you really also have to have a coach. So that's the message I want to leave with you. And I encourage you to share this episode, maybe with someone else, so that they also will see the value of coaching. And while you're sharing it, please, please rate and review this podcast. And if you found this episode helpful, there are two that I really think you should consider. One is episode 203 with Carrie Rosbeck, The Secret to Resiliency. And the second, we're going to go in the Wayback Machine, oh gosh, almost 250 episodes ago, episode 65, Empathetic Management in the Nonprofit Sector with Carrie Rice. Because, you know, when we stop being that umbrella manager, if we don't show some empathy and genuine care, guess what? They're not even going to see us as a nice person either, and it's going to be much harder to work with them. So make sure you check out episode 65. 
That, my friends, is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive. And you know, this has never been my favorite part of the show, but the lawyers make me do it. Chat GPT has made it a little bit more fun, though, because now instead of just telling you the disclaimer, which I used to know by heart, I now just have Chat GPT give me a different form of the disclaimer. So if Walt Whitman were to give you the disclaimer, here's what he might say. Behold, fellow travelers in this grand cosmos of philanthropy and goodwill, this voice that echoes in your ears belongs not to an accountant, nor to an attorney, but merely to a humble conduit of ideas, a gatherer and sharer of wisdom. Like the lonesome sparrow does not weave the lily silk, neither I nor my consulting practice can spin you tales of tax, legal, or accounting advice. We are but stargazers in this grand sky of knowledge, pointing out constellations, but never daring to draw them ourselves. What unfurls in this podcast, like a sail catching the wind, is just for your enrichment, a beacon of information in the twilight. Yet just as the moon's reflection on the sea cannot guide a ship to safe harbor, this show should not be your sole compass for navigation, and especially not in the domains of tax, legal, or accounting. It stands as a lighthouse, a hint of land, but not as the terra firma of tax and accounting itself.